Good morning. We are delighted to see so many here with us this morning for our conference on U.S. strategic interests in the Arctic. I, I'm going to make a small change to our program. Um, we just received word that Senator Murkowski has been in a very minor fender bender on her way here. And uh, she is coming, uh, but we have to wait for a, she has to wait for another car uh, to pick her up and then fight the traffic from Capitol Hill uh, to CSIS. So we're going to have a slight change of program. After our opening remarks, we're going to invite the first panel forward. Uh, to begin, and when Senator Murkowski arrives, we're going to hit the uh, pause button on the first panel and uh, invite Senator Murkowski to give her remarks, and after she uh, provides those remarks and departs, we'll hit the play button again, and the first panel will pick up right where they uh, left off. So, uh, uh, but uh, Senator Murkowski is perfectly fine, other than uh, uh, dealing with the Capitol Police and a lot of traffic. So, uh, uh, that, just one programming note. But uh, uh, again, welcome to you. I have to say, and, and this, and Senator Murkowski's little blip, I have to say after two back-to-back -back blizzards in February that postponed our original conference, the volcanic ash cloud that nearly gave us all a heart attack that we might not be able to implement again. And now this, I'm starting to wonder if we're not receiving some signs from above <laughs> about this conference. But uh, persistence and patience uh, overcome all things. And thankfully, the transatlantic skies have cleared. And the only white things under our feet, I think, are cherry blossoms. So uh, we're grateful for you uh, for being here today. I think uh, we have an exceptional day planned for you. Um, certainly, uh, Senator Murkowski is uh, as the senior senator from Alaska and the foremost expert, or one of the foremost experts on Arctic issues in the Congress. I think she will set the tone uh, perfectly on why the U.S. is an engaged and active actor in the Arctic. And then, as I said, we'll start and then stop our first panel with, a, with a, an important discussion on the law of the sea and the weighing the pros and cons of U.S. ratification of that important treaty. And then following the law of the sea panel, we'll move quickly to a discussion on what should the U.S. security posture be in the Arctic. And uh, I think uh, we'll have a very lively dialogue, uh, particularly on the Coast Guard posture uh, and, and naval uh, activities. And then lunchtime, we swing in and we welcome Deputy Secretary of State Jim Steinberg. I think it's important to note a uh, year after uh, his visit to Tromso, Norway, where he uh, was the U.S. representative to the Arctic Council Ministerial, um, we can hear his words on a year later, where is U.S. engagement in this important region? And we are very lucky. The, the good thing that came out of our delayed conference is that we were able to be joined uh, by Norwegian uh, Deputy Defense Minister Espen Barth Ida, who is a very good friend to CSIS, and we are very fortunate to have uh, the Deputy Minister with us. I'd like to claim credit for the first deliverable of the conference being yesterday's historic announcement between Norway and Russia uh, on the maritime delimitation between the Barents Sea and the Arctic Ocean. So look, we're already off to a fantastic start. Uh, and we're delighted uh, that Minister Barthada will really be the 
senior-ranking official to help explain that uh, historic agreement, the 40 years that it took to, to reach it. And I think it will be an encouragement to other Arctic actors to resolve their longstanding disputes as well. We'll talk about that much later. We are delighted to welcome Norwegian Ambassador to Washington, Ambassador Stroman. Thank you, Ambassador Stroman. You've been, you and the embassy have been a tremendous partner and supporter to our efforts. We're delighted that you are here. And another benefit of postponement, we are able to welcome the U.S. Ambassador to Norway, Ambassador Barry White, the Barry White, as we like to say. Uh, Ambassador White, uh, we are absolutely delighted that you could uh, be with us today. Now, I was concerned because of all the February snow has melted here in Washington, and all of the Washingtonians say thank you. Um, I was a little concerned that we might not be able to fully place ourselves in an Arctic state of mind for this conference. So I thought maybe we could turn up the air conditioning, get it cold in here, but we'll be kind to the environment. What I thought we'd do is show you a very brief video clip that helps you get into that Arctic frame of mind. So uh, we'll just pause for a very brief video. Well, thank you. Now I hope you're in an Arctic frame of mind uh, before we begin. I, I want to take a moment. That video was created and designed by my research assistant, uh, Jamie Crouch, who is a very gifted and talented and indispensable person. So I'd like to uh, uh, thank her very much for her excellent work. Now I'd like to welcome forward uh, my partner. I won't say in crime, but we have been mischievous in some of our uh, our activities. Uh, Rolf Tomnes, uh, who is the executive director of the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies, uh, and uh, whose collaboration uh, for this conference and this project would not be possible. So, Rolf, may I invite you up to provide some uh, opening remarks? Thank you, Heather, Dr. Hamra distinguished guests and ladies and gentlemen. It's great to be back at the CSIS during the best season in Washington, and of course without having to be worried about snowstorms and volcanic eruption. Let me take this opportunity to express my gratitude to CSIS for creating such an important meeting place CSIS is, as has been indicated, a key partner in our joint research program on the geopolitics in the high north, a truly international effort with partners and associates in many countries, and many of whom are with us today. The challenges in the north are not among the imminent issues. Uh, as you know, the crises of the day are elsewhere around the world. At the same time, there is every reason to have in mind the fundamental changes uh, taking place in the North. Uh, we will face with a number of challenges, yes indeed, but there is every reason to underline the opportunities as well. And yesterday, as Hedley Heather indicated, Norway and, uh, and Russia reached an historic agreement on the delimitation line in the Barents Sea after 40 years of negotiations. This agreement will no doubt contribute to enhancing cooperation in the North. We shall return to that question uh, later today, so I leave it there. I have also noticed uh, a growing US interest in Arctic affairs, illustrated by the Arctic Policy Directive, the Navy's Arctic uh, Roadmap, and a strong US interest in strengthening the Arctic Council cooperation. And the thorough CSI report released today 
is an excellent uh, starting point and platform for discussing U.S. interests and policy in the North. More specifically, I would like to mention very briefly four issues that are on the top of my head when it comes to the North. And the first issue uh, concerns the international legal framework. And our first uh, session today will address the U.S. and the Law of the Sea Convention. It should come as no surprise to you that U.S. ratification is seen as an important step in Europe, as a visible expression of U.S. commitment to act as a heavily engaged and responsible stakeholder. And second, the energy issue. The vast oil and gas resources in the North have led many to conclude that they are in many ways the solution to the future scarcity of energy. But as we all know, there are a great number of uh, question marks here, including uh, the recent uh, changes in the global gas markets, notably the shale gas revolution in uh, North America. And we face the possibility that the huge Russian resources in the north may become far less attractive. And the fate of the Stockman gas field in the Barents Sea might be an important and interesting litmus test, notably the LNG part of it. Third, uh, security issues. Most will agree that the opening up of the Arctic and increased activity face us with a number of soft security challenges. At the same time, hard security is a part of the picture. Although the characteristics of hard security in the European Arctic are very different from those in North America. Last November, the Canadian chief of the defense staff pointed out that there is no conventional military threat to the Arctic. If someone were to invade the Canadian Arctic, my first task would be to rescue them. <laughs> well, the strategic environment of Northern Europe is somewhat different because of the existence of uh, considerable conventional forces and not least the heavy concentration of nuclear, nuclear capabilities. Most, I think, will agree that these security questions will have to be managed first and foremost within the framework of multilateral agreements and by strengthening the overall cooperation with Russia. Some will also argued for, argue for a parallel track that NATO needs to structure its conventional capabilities in such a way that the alliance maintains its collective defense purpose in a credible manner. And the ongoing revision of NATO's strategic concept brings attention to the role of the so-called in-era missions of the alliance. Lastly, my fourth issue concerns the future role of Asia in the Arctic. In the long-term perspective, and with the rise of Asia, major Asian powers might have significant economic and military footprints in the Arctic and claim their seats at the table. And such adjustments might be very painful. These are just to indicate some of the issues that are at least of interest from my perspective. But today I'm here to learn. It's a great pleasure to take part in a conference with such a knowledgeable and prestigious audience. And I look forward to the presentations with great expectations.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I, we just heard word that Senator Murkowski is in the car en route. So I'm sure as soon as we ask the panel to sit down and uh, take their seats, we'll uh, probably be welcoming Senator Murkowski. But Mary, why don't you bring everyone, if I can invite the first panel to, uh, to come up here. And uh, we will, uh, as I said, we'll begin and uh, beg your indulgence when we have to take a break for Senator Murkowski. So... Mary Beth, I will leave the floor to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're deli delighted to see all of you here and delighted to be here today and, and learn. Um, as, as I think most of us know, warming in the Arctic is changing how we need to define and pursue U.S. national interests in that region. Warming is affecting nearly all aspects of life, from marine and terrestrial ecosystems to human health and well-being, to our energy, homeland, and national security interests. Among other things, the opening of the Arctic to increased shipping and possible resource activity will necessitate additional maritime presence and security in the region. Boundary disputes and jurisdictional issues affecting shipping and other activities need to be resolved, and as we've heard, we've had a big step forward in, the, in that regard just yesterday. Gaps in the regulatory framework need to be filled, and the potential for resource activity in ocean and, and continental shelves in particular, will necessitate delineation of the outer edges of the continental shelves in the area. These challenges provide a, a great opportunity for the Arctic nations to join together in a regional cooperative effort to demonstrate how such matters can and should be dealt with by responsible actors in the international arena. They also provide a great opportunity for the nations involved to get ahead of the curve and try to deal with some of these issues before they become serious problems. Um, in that regard, uh, let me just say um, I am currently the director of the Washington office of IUCN, and IUCN is working with many of the governments and uh, non-governmental organizations in the room on a uh, program that has to do with developing a framework for ecosystem-based management in the Arctic. The Law of the Sea Convention applies in the Arctic and forms the framework for moving forward on these issues. As we know, all Arctic states are parties to the Law of the Sea Treaty, except for the United States. This panel will explore the role that the Law of the Sea Convention can play in the Arctic and the reasons for the U.S. to join, the reasons that are even more critical now that we are facing the issues in the Arctic, which are before us. We have a very distinguished panel uh, today, and I, you have their bios, but I'll just mention a couple of, uh, of specific things about each member. Um, first is Mead Treadwell, who is the chairman of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission and also a senior fellow at the Institute of the North, focusing on strategic issues in the Arctic and natural resource policy. 
He also has had a long career with Arctic uh, um, institutions and helped establish uh, a number of institutions, including the Arctic Environment Protection Strategy, which was the precursor of the Arctic Council. Second, Scott Borgerson, who's a visiting fellow for ocean governance at the Council on Foreign Relations and adjunct senior research scholar at Columbia University Center for Energy, Marine, Transportation, and Public Policy. Uh, he has focused on the foreign policy implications of increased access in the melting Arctic Ocean. Third, John Bellinger, a partner at Arnold and Porter in its international law and national security practice, and also an adjunct senior fellow in the international and national security law of the Council on Foreign Relations. John was formerly legal advisor of the Department of State from 2005 to 2009. Should we stop? Yes, yes, we'll stop. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you all for understanding. This is a, 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 a complicated morning, more for Senator Murkowski than us. I mean, I'm, she, uh, she was on her way over here and got hit by a Metro bus. And uh, we're just really very, I mean, she's a real trooper to do something. But then she's from Alaska, you know. You have to have a lot of uh, stamina, you know. And I think you've demonstrated it this morning, Senator. We're so grateful that you're here. Uh, this is, uh, of course, you are the senator from the high north in America and have done more than anybody to shape America's thinking about this critical region. And, of course, that's led you to become an internationalist because that, by definition, is what we have to do when we're thinking about this region. So Senator Murkowski is, uh, has been a leader on uh, both Arctic legislation and has been a leader in trying to get Law of the Sea finally moving. And I think it's, it's emblematic of someone that's out on the frontier uh, has to also be out on the intellectual frontier. And she has been doing that. And we're so grateful that you're here. We apologize, colleagues, that we had to do it this way. And, but Senator Murkowski, why don't you come up and offer your, your remarks? Finally, you're here. Thank you for coming. Well, good morning. And, you know, today's going to be one of those days where there are going to be a lot of bus jokes. And, and I was thinking, as you mentioned, that at least I wasn't thrown under the bus or whatever. But uh, I will tell you, coming from Alaska in the land of the earthquakes, um, when, when we got hit, I thought, oh, my gosh, there's an earthquake going on. So it, it, it tells you that I'm not a city kid yet. You're probably more used to the, to the, to the bus uh, vehicular uh, interface, but uh, anyway, I I appreciate the opportunity to to be back with you, and my apologies for for interruption uh, of the panel. I know that that is intrusive, but I think you uh, uh, you got the, the the good excuse this morning. It's better than the dog eating the homework. I want to thank uh, CSIS and the Norwegian Institute uh, for Defense Studies for sponsoring the conference that you have before us. You've got a great panel a great panel of, of some of the top experts on the Arctic as, as speakers and panelists. I really wish that I could, could attend so much of what you have in front of you today. I'm going to have to rely on, on my staff, Arnie, here for some of that. But uh, I, I, I do think you've put together a, a great group. It is, um, it is indeed 
a great opportunity for me to be here to talk about the Arctic, and, and John has noted my involvement, um, but it is one of those subject areas when I get talking, there's a lot of passion uh, for the issue, passion for what uh, is happening up north and, and for the opportunities that present themselves. There is, as you know, a, a growing public interest in the region. It's primarily due to the impacts of, of climate change, the loss of the sea ice, the increased access to natural resources. Of course, the attention on, on the polar bear has also attracted a great deal of, of interest there in the high north. But the significance of the region, both from the Arctic and the non-Arctic states, is clearly gaining in, in appreciation. I, I believe that we're at a critical time in the Arctic, and, and many of you have heard me say that there, there are two paths that we can go on with regards to international relations. One is a path of competition and conflict. The other is one of cooperation and, and diplomacy. And I think that the, the decision on which path we ultimately take is going to require some dynamic leadership. And one of the first areas that we need to demonstrate that leadership is here in the United States and the Senate ratification of the Convention for the Law of the Sea Treaty. I think it's absolutely crucial, absolutely critical, that the United States be a party to the treaty and, and a player in the process rather than being an outsider, hoping just hoping that our interests are not going to be damaged. Accession to the convention would give current and, and future administrations both the enhanced credibility and the leverage in calling upon other nations to meet the convention responsibilities. And given the support for the treaty by Arctic nations and the drive to develop natural resources, the treaty will also provide the environmental framework to develop these resources while minimizing the environmental impacts. As you know, the United States is, is the only Arctic state that is not a party to the Law of the Sea Convention. The treaty was submitted to the U.S. Senate for approval back in 1994, and we're still waiting. Canada and, and Denmark joined the treaty in 2003 and 2004, respectively. But until the U.S. accedes to the treaty, it cannot submit its data regarding the extent of its extended continental shelf to the Commission on the limits of the, the continental shelf that's established under the treaty. And without a Commission recommendation regarding such data, the legal foundation for ECS limits is, is much, much less certain than if the U.S. were a party to the treaty. So, again, I, I repeat that we must ratify the treaty, but we're, we're really at somewhat of, of a stalemate right now insofar as, as resolving that. The White House is looking to the Senate to lead, and the Senate is waiting for a stronger showing of support from the administration. Now, in part, uh, the Senate calendar is... is uh, somewhat to blame in this. It's anticipated that if the majority leader would move the treaty to the Senate floor, it, uh, it's expected that it would consume at least a week of floor time. And as you know, within our process, a, a week on the floor is, is, uh, is considerable. And considering that we've got a little less than 45 legislative days before we depart for the, for the August recess and and uh, really get into to the thick of the, uh, the political season, it's, it's highly uncertain 
that uh, such time, you know, a full week of time will be carved out unless unless it becomes a, a priority for the administration. And given the, the president's focus of late on advancing the START treaty, I see even less of an opportunity to schedule the Law of the Sea Treaty this year. Um, and again, unfortunately, failure to ratify continues to keep the U.S. at a disadvantage internationally and outside the process without a seat at the table. I wish I could give you more optimistic news from the, from the Senate's perspective, but I'm just being pragmatic about what's going on with, within the Senate calendar. Now, I spoke of these two possible paths forward, and I want to expand on that a minute. Um, some have described a scenario where the Arctic is undergoing an, an arms race or a race for resources, but I'm not necessarily convinced that this is the case. I do believe that we've got some posturing going on, especially between Canada and Russia, but not much of that is, is translating into action. The Canadian government has taken a number of steps and statements to assert their sovereignty in the region, including the release of a northern strategy uh, as well as planning of a military base in the Canadian Arctic, plans to build a, build a fleet of ice strength and patrol boats, renaming the Northwest Passage the Canadian Northwest Passage. Uh, Russia also has um, evidenced some increasingly assertive behavior in regards to military and economic expansion in the, in the Arctic. The Russian Security Council released details of how it will conduct its Arctic policy. Uh, the, the document is entitled the fundamentals of Russian state policy in the Arctic up to 2020 and beyond. Now, that document touches upon sustainable development and environmental conservation and even emphasizes the need to preserve the Arctic as a zone of peace and cooperation. And while the new strategy does reaffirm the determination of the country to establish a new military unit designed to protect the country's Arctic territory, the policy is, is, is clearly much broader than that. Now, here in the United States, um, we, as you know, have issued an, an updated policy for the Arctic. This was done in January of 2009, the National Security Presidential Directive on Arctic Policy. Um, I'm pleased to see that we're making um, some, some good progress. Uh, it was a somewhat uh, lengthy transition with the new administration, but the State Department is leading the effort to implement the policy, and various agencies are moving forward with the implementation, which is good. The U.S. Navy has a new roadmap for the Arctic. I've asked them to study the feasibility of a, of a deep water port in the far north. Um, the study will look to assess whether it's in the strategic best interests of the United States, as I believe it is, to build a port and then determine where that port might be located. Um, a deep water port will clearly not only serve our military and our Coast Guard needs, but as we develop our offshore oil and gas reserves and see more shipping, more tourism, more vessel traffic within the Arctic, uh, we recognize that a deep water port could provide valuable support for these activities as well. That study is, is anticipated to be complete by 2011. Uh, in addition to the, to the Navy study, the U.S. Coast Guard has embarked on their own high-latitude study to determine what assets and infrastructure they need to be prepared for an ice-diminished Arctic. Uh, this assessment will also be done by uh, 2011. 
and I, I think it's well recognized, and I appreciate, uh, appreciate the focus and the involvement, the commitment from the Coast Guard. We recognize that with increased maritime activity in the Arctic and, and such an incredible shortage of infrastructure, that it really is vital that we determine what the needs are and then actively work to provide resources to protect the Arctic residents as well as the environment. Now, other nations without coastlines in the Arctic are also showing an increasing um, interest within the region. The Chinese have one icebreaker. They're planning to build more. They've got a very active uh, polar research program. The South Korean shipyards are now leading the world in construction of icebreakers, mostly of Finnish design and ice-strengthened tankers and, and freighters. Both countries, along with Italy and the European Union, have applied for observer status at the Arctic Council. The EU, through the European Commission and the European Parliament, is gradually developing an Arctic policy to address EU interests in the region as well. Now, as we are all very keenly aware, uh, while the Arctic is becoming more and more ice-free in the summer months, Arctic ice is not going to completely disappear. Um, and one of the challenges that we will continue to face as a consequence is that <clears throat> we have an aging icebreaker fleet. Uh, as you know, the U.S. has one operating heavy icebreaker, the Polar Sea, and we have one light icebreaker research vessel, the Healy. I was able to get uh, an appropriation to refurbish the other heavy icebreaker, the Polar Star, last year and fund the U.S. Coast Guard to do a study to determine whether or not we need to rebuild or to replace our polar-class vessels. But really, no matter what the results of the study, we must make the commitment uh, and, and, and gain the commitment of the administration and within Congress, uh, the commitment that says that icebreakers are a national priority. And I'll continue to do all I can to, to advocate that uh, position. Extraordinarily important. Now, as you may have also observed, in the last few years, the governance of the Arctic has become even more complex. In 2008, the five coastal states bordering the Arctic Ocean, Canada, Denmark, Norway, the Russian Federation, and the U.S., perceiving growing interest in the region and perhaps somewhat preemptively, issued a declaration that reaffirmed their role as the primary stakeholders of the high north, reinforced the law of the sea as the, as the law of the land, and mechanism for resolving potentially overlapping Arctic Ocean claims. But because they did not include the other permanent participants of the Arctic Council, there were a number of concerns raised. And this issue came up uh, just recently in Quebec on March 29th of this year. Secretary uh, of State Hillary Clinton, who I must say has been a real champion for the Arctic in this administration. Uh, she was up there uh, for a one-day Arctic summit. But only the Arctic coastal states were invited and participated, and Secretary Clinton uh, criticized Canada for not inviting all those with legitimate interests in the polar region. Both the indigenous community and the Arctic nations uh, of Sweden, Finland, and Iceland had voiced concerns that they had been left out of that particular conference. Now, while conflict in the region may not be imminent, certainly there are competing interests and, and competing views within the region. And this really leads to some fundamental questions, such as who are 
the major stakeholders on issues of Arctic governance? What are their interests? What are their roles? We recognize, or I certainly recognize, and I think those of you in the room recognize that there is great opportunity to work collaboratively and cooperatively. The Arctic is one area uh, where the Obama administration can highlight this international cooperation in the implementation of U.S. foreign policy. And this kind of follows the administration's uh, intent to reset relations with Russia. And the Arctic, I, I think, is a great place uh, to be starting that. There are many examples of, of this cooperation that we have seen uh, amongst nations. We've got the Canada-U.S. Arctic Cooperation Agreement on the Northwest Passage. Um, this bilateral agreement allows for practical cooperation regarding matters relating to the Northwest Passage while affirming that the two countries agree to disagree about the status of the passage under applicable international law, but it demonstrates a capacity to collaborate in functional terms without resolving some of the legal differences. Now, I've mentioned the Arctic Council, but there are other effective forums for international dialogue on the Arctic, including the Standing Committee of Arctic Parliamentarians, of which I'm a member. We have the Nordic Nordic Council of Ministers, the Barents uh, Euro-Arctic Council, the Northern Forum. We've also got to recognize the valuable contribution that organizations like the Inuit Circumpolar Council have played in representing the indigenous uh, people's interests in the far north. There are many, many agreements uh, that we can cite to between the Arctic states with regards to the fisheries alone. We've got agreements between Norway, Iceland, the Russian Federation, and the Barents Sea, uh, the United States and Russia on Pollock stocks in the Bering Sea, and the EU and Norway in, in Svalbard. Um, my former colleague, uh, Senator Ted Stevens, and I, we introduced a Senate resolution that became law back in 2008 that calls on the U.S. to enter into international discussions, take necessary steps with other Arctic nations uh, to agree on management of migratory, transboundary, and straddling fish stocks within the Arctic Ocean. And I'm pleased that the administration has been doing so at every opportunity, including when Secretary Clinton met with foreign ministers of other Arctic coastal nations in, in Canada last month. In, in October of, of last year, Anchorage played host to the International Arctic Fisheries Symposium, which brought together scientists, fisheries managers, policymakers from around the Arctic region to consider those next steps. And I understand now that Norway is offering to host a follow-up meeting in the near future. But it, 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 again, is an example of how we promote cooperative scientific research in the changing Arctic ecosystem as, as a step towards this management of, of the new fisheries that may occur there. Now, an area of perceived competition is the extended continental shelf claims of the Arctic states. And while there's been a dramatic increase in, in mapping activity in the Arctic, it's actually, I think, an area where we're seeing a fair amount of agreement. Canada and Greenland have agreed on delimination of the continental shelf between them, um, as Norway has with Iceland and Greenland on Jan Mayan Island. The U.S. and Canada have been working the last two summers on extended continental shelf data collection in the Arctic. They're scheduled to, uh, to work again this summer. Uh, the U.S. icebreaker Healy completed the second summer of joint mapping with the Canadian icebreaker, the Louis Saint Laurent. And though each ship has their own equipment, 
in order to accomplish the mission. Combining their efforts provides better data. They can cover more area together. Uh, we're also seeing Norway and Russia working together to jointly survey the Barents Sea area. And in the latest development of international cooperation just yesterday, Russia and Norway announced that they have reached agreement on the resolution of their maritime boundary in the Arctic and on the management of fisheries and potential mineral development in the region. The next step is to develop a treaty between the two nations and regulations governing joint development of the resources. I think this is a, agreement is a significant step towards eliminating the most significant boundary dispute among the Arctic states. I know there will be much further discussion about the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment that recommends the, the comprehensive multinational Arctic search and rescue instrument amongst the eight Arctic nations. But I'm pleased to report that the U.S. State Department, the Russian Federation, are leading the negotiations with the goal of having an agreement ready to be signed by the Arctic ministers when the Arctic Council convenes in April of next year. And then, of course, the, the, the great collaboration and cooperation that took place um, with the International Polar Year, which lasted from 2007 to, to 2009. Certainly a, a collaborative, multinational effort um, that was, was really quite considerable. So really, what does the future hold for the Arctic? I, I believe that the pace of change in the Arctic demands demands that greater attention be focused on the region. The implications of the dynamic changing Arctic for the residents and the important security, economic, environmental, and political interests depend on it. But again, the question must be asked is whether or not this is going to be an area of, of multilateral cooperation or whether it will be an area of conflict. But I remain confident, hopeful certainly, that it will be one of, of cooperation. But it will take robust diplomacy and very likely uh, recognition, as, Senator, as Secretary Clinton has reminded us, that the interest in the Arctic is not just limited to the five Arctic coastal states or even the eight countries who are the permanent members of the Arctic Council. It will take a level of cooperation and collaboration to include the non-Arctic states as well. I am pleased um, that seems like it's been a long time. Ever so, ever so slowly, the United States is waking up to the fact that we are indeed an Arctic nation, and it has taken uh, a lot of work by many of you in this room uh, to have uh, folks at, at a policy level uh, not only accept, endorse, but to embrace the fact that we are an Arctic nation. And I'm confident that with the leadership of, of members of Congress, the administration and from the Arctic community at large, we can continue to highlight the strategic importance of the Arctic for this country. With that, again, I thank you for all that you do on this very, very important issue in this incredible part of our globe. Thank you very much. Senator Murkowski, thank you so much. You have uh, you are resilience yourself uh, with this morning. Uh, we are extremely grateful. What a great opening to a great discussion. And uh, we will say goodbye. And we will turn. We will hit the play button now and allow uh, Mary Beth to continue. Take, take the pause Please. off. Please, exactly. You. I'll walk you out. Thank, thank you. It's appropriate that I introduce our fourth panel member, who is Arnie Fugelbog, who is um, who the, the senator 
uh, began to introduce. He's the senior legislative assistant in the office of Senator Mikowski, and he handles a host of legislative issues related to uh, fisheries, uh, transportation, Arctic, and natural resources, and he really knows how things operate on the ground or in the water because he was a commercial fisherman in Alaska for 30 years before coming to Washington. Um, I'm, I will now turn the discussion over to our panel members, and I've asked each of them to speak for 10 to 15 minutes, and then hopefully we will have time for some questions at the end. Thanks. Thank you, Mary Beth. <clears throat> I think when we're talking about the Arctic and realizing the fact that America is an Arctic nation, it's delightful for me as an Alaskan that we get to start with three Alaskans this morning. Uh, my colleague, Arnie Fugelvog, uh, who has been a long time, uh, uh, grew up in Petersburg and uh, is a fantastic uh, uh, asset, not only here in Washington, but is uh, done a huge amount to help our fisheries in Alaska. Uh, Senator Murkowski, of course, and I'm very glad that she was not put under the bus. Uh, uh, she's, uh, I, I would be missing a, a great hiking and skiing partner besides a fantastic senator. So it's uh, delightful to be here today, and thank you for doing this. There's a saying in Alaska that we're always getting ready. It's a native setting uh, saying, and it uh, has to do sometimes with... Uh, uh, getting ready for winter, putting up food, getting ready for spring, and getting our fishing gear uh, ready or our hunting gear ready. And uh, in the Arctic, we've been getting ready for international governance for some time. We've needed law of the sea. We needed it in the 70s when huge flotillas of, of uh, foreign ships were decimating our fisheries. And it was kind of the, the recognition through the law of the sea process that we could go to a 200-mile limit and assert science rather than competing science and regulate those fisheries and those fisheries in the North Pacific uh, and, and the Bering Sea are some of the most productive in the world and some of the best managed. And it's because of that traditional uh, legal acceptance of the 200-mile limit, uh, which is uh, part of the law of the sea treaty, that we have sustainable fisheries today. Um, the commission considered whether or not to support law of the sea uh, early in the time that I was a commissioner in the early part of this decade, in the last decade, and uh, I was the last holdout on the, on the commission. And I was the last holdout not necessarily because of the security arguments that had been raised. Uh, I was not the last holdout because of the environmental arguments that have been raised. I actually, uh, we, we listened hard to representatives of the Joint Chiefs who said that our security is actually enhanced by a framework on law of the sea that makes sense. We listened to those who said there is not an overarching reach into U.S. law with environment and that Congress certainly has every prerogative to, to only issue environmental laws that uh, they themselves want to pass. It was not even the, uh, the prospect of mapping for two Californias and what it would do for Arctic research that that, that caused me to think about it. It was really the issue of access in the Arctic. And today what I'd like to do, if, uh, if, if I can, is show you a little bit about exploration that's going on 
in the Arctic and how that's led to uh, discussions of governance. One of the great pleasures of my job is to get the Arctic as often as possible, uh, not only around the eight countries, but around my own home state. And there are really two kinds of exploration going on. The first is understanding what's there. Uh, on one of the Arctic Domain Awareness flights with the Coast Guard last year, uh, Jane Lubchenco and uh, uh, the Commandant Thad Allen dropped a buoy in the Arctic Ocean. We had to be very careful that we dropped it in international waters and not in Russian waters. Uh, we have spotted uh, lots of wildlife from the air. We sampled the air about two weeks ago in our Arctic Domain Awareness flight. We've been tracking ice thickness. Uh, we've been looking at ships uh, that are now coming into the Arctic Ocean. And uh, just two weeks ago, we saw whaling camp getting ready. So that's some of the exploration that's going on now. But we also have another kind of exploration. And that's the kind of exploration on how do we govern this newly accessible Arctic Ocean. Uh, how do we assert our security, our economic interests, defend against pollution, uh, regulate shipping, uh, get investment for shipping, look at threats, and also how do we realize and how do we do this in what is still an advancing age of uh, self-determination and decolonization, where countries uh, or places like Greenland may someday become an independent country. So we see the law of the sea, and we, uh, we supported the law of the sea from the commission, not only because it was a basis for governance in the Arctic, but it was also a way to get us to the table to talk about some of these very important access issues uh, in the Arctic that are necessary to keep exploration going. 25% uh, of the world's continental shelf is in the Arctic. And so delimiting that continental shelf and the extended continental shelf is very important. Article 234 in the Law of the Sea allows us to assert uh, or, or allows nations adjacent to traditional ice-covered waters to do extra things to protect the environment. And we see that as important. I already mentioned the importance of the framework for fisheries, the framework for shipping that is discussed uh, in the Arctic uh, Marine Shipping Assessment, which was endorsed uh, by all eight Arctic nations in, in uh, Tromso last year. And finally, it's a place to come to the table to talk about science. So let me just take a, a couple of minutes to talk about the science. The science going on is helping to solve vital mysteries for the Earth. And it's very important that this continue. Uh, we are not only drawing lines on the map as far as where our territory is, but we are adding features to the map every day. There's Terra Nova. There's new seamounts being found. There's new bathymetry being found. And the work going on on extended continental shelf by the United States, by Canada, by the other nations, is helping to add to the map and add to tremendous human knowledge. Uh, we are, of course, tracking the changes in sea ice, which have tremendous effects on life in the planet, uh, all around the planet. We are tracking something uh, very important. The thawing of permafrost uh, is seeing a spike in the amount of methane entering the atmosphere. And if you think, uh, you know, if you wonder if that's important, the amount of methane now being thrown out, say, just in Siberia, is equal in greenhouse gas effect to all the cars, trucks, trains, and planes in California. It's a significant amount. We are trying to track what is happening and why is the ice receding so quickly. And one of the potential culprits is black carbon. And the Arctic Council has a task force on black carbon 
uh, that is uh, taking a look at this and helping to see where we in the Arctic may come to the rest of the world and say, if you can reduce your soot from changing agricultural practices or forest fire management or some other things, we may be able to help protect this part of the world sooner. We have the tremendous amounts of energy in the Arctic, which are just beginning to be understood, and there is offshore oil development going on in six Arctic countries right now, in one form or another. And so there's a very strong interest among us to make sure that we have good guidelines, because if you mess up anywhere, you mess it up for everywhere. We uh, also have the issues of ice-dependent species, uh, like polar bear, seals, uh, walrus. And uh, I think the world would say that if we muff this and if we lose these species and don't pay extra attention with exploration, we've, we've done a bad thing as a human species. One of my big concerns, and one reason why it's very important to have the Arctic open for access for exploration, is the food chain and ocean acidification. Uh, there is lots of argument in climate change about what is happening with global temperatures, what may happen with sea level rise and so forth. There's a whole lot less argument on what's happening with ocean acidification and the effect that that could have on the food chain, not only on the crab that I like to eat, but the little shellfish, the salmon, like to eat. And if we lose that capability uh, on Earth, I think we've got a real problem. So in arguing for law of the sea and arguing for basic governance, I'm also arguing for a framework that allows for and gives us a place at the table to assure that we have access for science. And one commitment that we've made at the end of the International Polar Year is uh, to uh, a, a seon, to a, a sustained Arctic observing network to make sure that we've left the Arctic wired for sound to give you co complete and recurring data, uh, which is very important to answer all of these questions. We also have been pushing from the commission for, as Senator Murkowski said, new icebreakers. Exploration needs access, not only legal access, but we need physical access. And replacing the heavy polar class icebreakers is very important for exploration, and it's very important for our governance goals. Let me finish up with just a short discussion on governance. I believe the informed governance process, what's been happening in the Arctic Council and its precursors since the early 1990s, is that we are seeing Arctic governance develop from the inside out that we're developing norms, that we're developing ways to have best practices in the Arctic by getting to know each other. Realize that for most of a century, this neighborhood was not a neighborhood that could have a conversation, a civil conversation. And we have done quite a bit in the meantime. Last year, uh, Eleanor Ostrom on the right was awarded the, uh, uh, co-awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics as a political scientist. And as a political scientist, she had said, Maybe Garrett Hardin, whose essay you may have read is 1968 essay, Tragedy of the Commons. Uh, maybe Garrett Hardin was, was, was wrong in saying that you don't necessarily need a leviathan, a great big binding set of treaties to, to make a commons work if you've got good communication between the users of that commons. And I think that's what the Arctic Council has been. Uh, so one proposal I would make today as we discuss Law of the Sea and what kind of Arctic governance we should have is that we look at the Arctic Council, the A8+, plus, as a norm, as a, as a very important piece of soft law, 
that is a tradition building in the far north of the world. Uh, and that it is that council that is already with many assessments, from the climate assessment, from the uh, AMAP uh, look at transboundary pollution, from the uh, pioneering work on shipping, has helped develop an agenda for appropriate human action in the Arctic. And then we have a debate in the Arctic Council on who our observers might be. And I would suggest that we rename them partners rather than observers, because there's much we can't do in the Arctic without the support of non-Arctic countries, whether it's for investment in appropriate shipping or acceptance of that. And then finally, in order to make that process work, we need the third ring. We need the global acceptance, the global license, the global sanction of, of treaties like the Law of the Sea and the work of groups like the International Maritime Organization, uh, UNESCO, and so forth. And so from the inside of the Arctic, in the area where we've been working for the last 100 years to get self-determination to the people of the North, we have a forum to set the agenda. And by adopting Law of the Sea, I think you would be accepting and, and improving uh, and giving a backbone to uh, a very, very good process in the Arctic. Uh, we have lots of uh, agendas in soft governance, hard governance that people have raised. In the soft governance, we have the, uh, the groups that Senator Murkowski mentioned, the Arctic Council, the question of the A5 versus the A8+. Plus. Uh, one norm, I should say, in the A8+, plus, and bully for Mrs. Clinton, for saying, let's not have Arctic meetings without indigenous people at the table. I can tell you it has added so much to the discussion, and it is only fair and appropriate. Uh, when we move to hard governance, the issues of whether or not we have an Arctic treaty, I believe, as the Alulisat uh, Declaration said, the law of the sea is the Arctic treaty. It is, uh, uh, it is what sets us up to have some of the other uh, hard, hard law that will come along possibly in fisheries, possibly in shipping, uh, possibly in other areas. But there are some, uh, some arguments, very good arguments, for the search and rescue agreement that is under negotiation for shipping, for a science access agreement, uh, for fishing, for improved security agreements, and for guidelines on oil and gas that might eventually become binding. There is an argument for joint investment models uh, that, again, having this framework with the law of the sea would help. So the Arctic Partners approach is one way to, to strengthen the soft law uh, issues of the Arctic Council, and the law of the sea is a way to give it global sanction. So with that, I guess I would just like to say on shipping, this our Arctic Council Marine Shipping Assessment, which uh, uh, was chaired by Lawson Brigham, who's here in the room, I like to say to libraries, when I give this to a university library, put a leather binding on this and set it right up next to Captain Cook's Voyages. Uh, for 500 years, governments have been sending explorers to the Arctic to find these shipping routes and to see how to make them work. This is the first time that eight governments have sat down and said, these shipping routes are here, and this is how we are going to make them work. And it all comes back to having, uh, having a good background, a good backbone on Law of the Sea. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. My comments should be brief because I echo everything that the Senator and Mead said, and I think you'll find 
near unanimous position on this panel that the United States is past due to join the Law of the Sea Convention. And in fact, I would be surprised um, if there's anyone in this room, actually, who <laughs> doesn't hold that position. We've heard, uh, I think, Rolf first, and then the Senator, and then Mead, and let me add my voice as the fourth, I, knowing John and Arnie follow. <laughs> there'll be five and six. Um, and I'll be surprised if there were any speakers this morning or today who did not think that it's past time and I think, frankly, an embarrassment that the United States has yet to join the convention. But uh, before enumerating uh, that point and some of the broader, I think, strategic uh, interests, um, let me sort of highlight a few additional points. Um, the first is I'd like to start by congratulating CSIS for an extraordinary conference. Uh, uh, communicate some jealousy uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations that CSIS is uh, doing such a tremendous job out front on this issue uh, and also applaud the Norwegians for uh, their considerable investment uh, sort of in this. Uh, second, as sort of the folks were filtering in and I looked at those who were attending, um, it's sort of been fun to be in the Arctic circuit uh, with some of the usual uh, suspects and um, I would particularly like to recognize both Meade, but especially Lawson Brigham, uh, who, when I was a Coast Guard lieutenant uh, in graduate school, working on a science fiction project of what if the sea ice receded and melted with this uh, very controversial topic called global warming, uh, what might happen when the shipping routes opened uh, or there was access to oil and gas? Uh, and Lawson was really instrumental in getting me excited about uh, that subject. Um, which has really sort of uh, influenced my career. So a particular expression of gratitude to Lawson. Um, and lastly, I'll note Rob Hubert in the audience because I think it sort of sets the template up for my comments on the law of the sea. There seems to be an illogical spectrum that's developing uh, of um, those who, um, and it goes very sort of similar along the lines of the center's comments, who embrace a future of, of course we all do, but... Uh, see highly likely an outcome of international cooperation, um, that the Arctic will develop peacefully, that all the sort of tools and frameworks and uh, legal regimes and governance uh, models are in place, and that the uh, Zeleusiat Declaration, which I think John will speak to, uh, embodies that we're on this track of sort of this beautiful future. Uh, on the other hand, I think Rob maybe is a little... Uh, further to me on the spectrum, but I think the main uh, sort of point, if I can offer one today, uh, is a urging a note of caution, of sobriety, of uh, realism. And while I hope for the best, um, and I'm an internationalist at heart, um, I think we have a duty uh, to plan for the worst. And looking back to history, I'll make a few sort of historical notes, but um, I'm not saying the Luciat Declaration is the Kellogg-Briand Pact, but uh, if you know about the Kellogg-Briand Pact, uh, the United States had a fit of guilt after not joining the League of Nations. Uh, and, of course, we remain with Iran, uh, North Korea, um, a very impressive list of non-convention uh, signatories, and Astans, who have huge coastlines, of course, uh, as being really the non-U.S. power to join that convention. And so there's a danger... Uh, of uh, believing and convincing ourselves uh, of a future when, um, and the center enumerated some of the, um, I guess, the short list of uh, issues or potential flashpoints in the Arctic that have yet uh, to remain resolved. Um, 
So I was asked to speak for 10 minutes or less. So I'd like to just sort of make a, sort of a few amplifying comments sort of on that theme. Uh, so the first is, I, th I thought Mead did a great job of capturing the rate of sea ice uh, melt, which uh, this winter, the overall area is not as bad as past uh, winters in terms of the refreeze, the polar ice cap. But what I think is really the headline story is the decrease in sea ice volume. And uh, it is unprecedented, um, histor historic, and alarming, in my opinion. And regardless of the debate about causation, which, of course, the current energy bill uh, is sort of retouching sort of those passions, a foreign policy hawk and realist about U.S. national security strategy, I think, has to be aware of um, the pace and rate at which that sea ice is melting. Uh, Mead also mentioned the methane release. I think also uh, little we have much sort of to learn still about feedback loops and uh, particularly the albedo effect and the pace at which the sea ice might melt. Uh, and just want to sort of, I guess, end on that environmental point of, to me, it's not if but when the host of geostrategic issues that were mentioned uh, are more germane to sort of hardcore U.S. national interests, which they are already, uh, and there's a real degree of urgency uh, to the discussion, um, which leads sort of directly to the law of the sea, which is what this panel is meant to address. The the sort of grown, uh, in part thanks to John's tutelage on the Law of the Sea Convention, we had some dueling op-eds there in the Times uh, at some point. And as the author of a foreign affairs piece called Arctic Meltdown, which had a, a postscript called The Great Game Moves North, um, I can say that um, I've really grown in my uh, sort of thinking about the Law of the Sea Convention and unequivocally want to express sort of my support for it as the hard granite foundation on which future Arctic governance will be built. Now, that said, I don't think it's the be-all and end-all of Arctic governance. I think it provides the, a solid, strong foundation, but there is future work to be done on building an elegant structure, uh, some through soft measures, others through hard ones, that makes sense to ensure that the future Arctic is one of, of cooperation uh, and not sort of that Hobbesian uh, world where some of the flashpoints are allowed to fester. Um, I'll offer, I guess, uh, three specific ideas. As a, as a think tank fellow, one of the sort of fun parts of my job is to not only stir the pot with Arctic meltdown articles and, and such, but throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. So uh, three sort of maybe additions, food for thought, uh, add sort of on top of meat suggestions of additional um, architecture on that solid foundation is First is the notion of a U.S. ambassador to the Arctic. I know that that can be controversial in some circles, given how the State Department, I have Dave's here, so I'm sorry, uh, and uh, existing sort of diplomatic paths as they are now. But it's hard not to note when you look at other Arctic countries and the level of interest that uh, it generates where Secretary of State and the Senator, of course, pay close attention to it. But I just wonder, and, and maybe even if the answer is not, that's not the answer, I think it's uh, an important discussion about what is sort of the right diplomatic level by, for the United States to not only participate in this discussion, but provide leadership in it. Um, the second is uh, deepening and widening the U.S.-Canadian agreement on the Northwest Passage. A few years ago, I had the uh, pleasure of participating in a totally unsanctioned uh, 
negotiation in Ottawa about what that might look like. And we all look to the 1817 Rush-Bagot Agreement for inspiration, where the U.S. and Canada demilitarized the Great Lakes, which at the time, uh, of course, you know, the War of 1812 history, uh, had not always been so. Uh, and the St. Lawrence Seaway um, evolved from that, which has been critical for the two countries uh, in both their economic development, but also in allowing them to focus their naval assets and other resources elsewhere. I think it provides a beautiful model on which we can still agree, disagree on whether it's the Canadian uh, Northwest Passage, as it was uh, renamed in Ottawa, or International Strait under the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, all of our interests are aligned, and the irony of it is, is I think the Canadians would love it for us to... We, neither side wants the, either to get their way because there are certain downfalls to that, and there's an extraordinary opportunity to formally deepen and widen uh, that arrangement so that we can sort of manage it in a shared way. And I could, uh, during the discussion, enumerate some sort of thoughts on that. Um, and lastly, um, there's a, a crazy idea in the New York Times op-ed uh, called the Arctic Circle of Friends. Uh, it would be totally consistent with the Law of the Sea Convention to create a marine sanctuary at the North Pole. And finally, give a gift back to Santa after all these years of getting gifts from him. Uh, we could take two degrees of latitude, 120 nautical miles, center on the North Pole, um, it's a very deep uh, part of the ocean. Uh, the prospects of hydrocarbon access there are minimal, uh, if ever. Uh, and I think it would be importantly symbolic uh, to, to create that area. Uh, not quite, you know, along the, there was some discussion about does Ant the Antarctic Treaty provide a model for the Arctic, an Arctic Treaty to you know, freeze all territorial claims and demilitarize the Arctic region, et cetera. That will never happen. Um, and we're fooling ourselves if we think it might. Um, but maybe at the North Pole, we could create a little sort of piece of that that could be a center for international sort of scientific research and I think be sort of highly symbolic. So I'll, I'll end there and I look forward to further discussing those issues with the other panelists during the uh, discussion period. Uh, but just would like, if it wasn't clear before, uh, further mark my name publicly if it isn't already there as a huge supporter of the uh, U.S., uh, the United Nations Conventional Law of the Sea. And... Uh, I don't know where it stacks up after financial reform and immigration and energy, um, and we heard the senator talk about the Senate calendar, but it's way past time that we join this treaty, and I hope that our president provides some leadership on it. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you, sir. Thank you all. And Scott, it's, it's a rare man in Washington who will admit that his views have, uh, have changed along the way. So uh, we have been discussing these issues about whether we need a new treaty or not for a long time. Uh, as uh, Mary Beth mentioned, I was the legal advisor for the State Department from 2005 to 2009. Mary Beth is too, uh, too uh, humble to mention that she is a distinguished alumnus or alumna of the Legal Advisor's Office who moved on to be one of our favorite policy officials. Uh, it falls to the Legal Advisor of the State Department to not only help uh, or even lead in the negotiation of all treaties, uh, but then to try to get them uh, approved by the Senate. Uh, so it, uh, it fell to me. I backed into the Arctic issues as part of my efforts as the Legal Advisor of the State Department to try to get the law of the sea uh, treaty approved by the Senate, uh, as all of my predecessors and legal advisors had tried to do before. And, of course, the Arctic is one of the uh, best arguments uh, for us with our Senate uh, in terms of trying to persuade them that we should become part of the Law of the Sea Treaty. 
Uh, my involvement, though, actually began a little bit before that, and that before I became the legal advisor at the State Department, I was the legal advisor at the National Security Council at the White House and began in 2001. Uh, one of the jobs of the NSC legal advisor is to coordinate the positions of all the U.S. government agencies, uh, which is not always an easy thing to do, uh, particularly in the Bush administration. Uh, but one of the first things that we needed to do in 2001 was to look at all of the treaties that we had inherited that had not uh, been acted upon. Uh, and we were given a list by the State Department and had to put together a treaty priority list of which treaties the Bush administration wanted to push. Uh, at the bottom in a, uh, a uh, uh, sort of a, a no man's area uh, was the Law of the Sea Treaty. And we looked at this in 2001 and there was a sort of a feeling in the White House that, well, gee, this is a Republican administration. Wasn't this a treaty that Ronald Reagan was against? Uh, maybe we shouldn't like this treaty. Uh, we'll just sort of leave it uh, languishing down at the bottom. Uh, I then led an effort uh, asking all of the U.S. government agencies their views on the treaty, and over a several-year period of time, it became apparent that even in the Bush administration, uh, that the Law of the Sea Treaty was something that we strongly, strongly wanted to support. And it moved from uh, a, the area of the treaty priority list of treaties upon uh, which we really take no position to priority one treaty upon which the Senate should urgently act. Uh, in, I think, 2003, 2004, uh, Senator Luger, who was then the uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, essentially tried to pull the treaty uh, out of the executive branch, uh, which did not really work terribly well because we did not have our act together at that point. Uh, by 2007, uh, 2008, when I had moved over to the State Department to become the legal advisor, we really put uh, forward a, uh, a full effort involving all the parts of the government uh, to try to push the treaty through the Senate. Uh, but unfortunately, it got caught up uh, in election year politics. Uh, and while it was approved by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we could never get uh, time uh, on the Senate floor. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, where we are on the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, but let me – overall, I'd like to make uh, sort of five points, uh, most, of, most of which I think are ones that we all agree with in the room, uh, but just uh, uh, to be able to reiterate them. Uh, you know, the, fir the first is, uh, do we need a comprehensive new legal framework for the Arctic? You know, this is something that's been batted around for a while. I know Scott started with, from the position that uh, maybe we do need a comprehensive new legal framework. Uh, the, there are certainly voices out there that continue to say that the Arctic is a vast, unregulated area. Uh, uh, but uh, the, uh, I think most of us in the room, certainly I and the U.S. government, believe uh, that the Law of the Sea Treaty provides a comprehensive legal framework uh, that provides for freedom of navigation, uh, for uh, environmental protection, uh, for dispute resolution, uh, for marine scientific research, uh, that it provides the comprehensive legal regime uh, that we need. Uh, most of us are familiar with the analogy with the Antarctic. Some of uh, There have been some voices that, that have suggested that we need a treaty for the Arctic like the Antarctic. Uh, of course, as we all know, the situations are completely different since the Antarctic is an uh, area of land to, to, uh, uh, surrounded by water, uh, whereas the Antarctic is water surrounded by land. 
Uh, the disputes originally in the Arctic amongst uh, the land mass were significant. Uh, in the Arctic, there are very few. Uh, we resolved uh, one more uh, two days ago with the Russia-Norwegian uh, agreement. Uh, the uh, the Russian-U.S. Uh, maritime boundary has been agreed and is waiting uh, for approval by the Duma. Uh, I, one of my disappointments as legal advisor was that we uh, were never able uh, to really sit down at the table to resolve uh, finally the uh, maritime boundary between Canada and the United States. Uh, but uh, I think this is something that perhaps with the impetus of the Norwegian-Russian agreement that we will uh, be able to get done. So. Uh, really, the, the idea that there are vast uh, disputes up in the Arctic, that there is uh, anarchy uh, that requires greater regulation uh, is uh, one uh, that I think is a myth. Uh, many of you know Hans Karel, who was the Swedish legal advisor, who then became the UN legal advisor. Uh, Hans, I think, uh, from perhaps from the somewhat bitter Iraq experience, had written uh, op-ed suggesting that the Arctic was going to be the next great uh, arms race and that the United States perhaps would go to war with Russia in the Arctic. Uh, uh, that There's really no indication that anything like that is going to happen. Uh, the, we have uh, agreed uh, in the Alulisit Declaration uh, the, to peaceful settlement of our uh, disputes. Uh, I was one of the participants at Alulisit. Secretary Rice was unfortunately not able to go uh, but John Negroponte, who, as many of you know, then Deputy Secretary and a former Assistant Secretary for Oceans and the Environment, and I, and I think I see Claudia McMurray, who was our Assistant Secretary for Oceans and the Environment in the back, uh, all went up representing the United States uh, and put together the Alulisit uh, Declaration, which uh, reaffirms, one, uh, our commitment to the Law of the Sea Treaty, uh, two, peaceful uh, resolution of disputes. Now, the, uh, I, I think there's, there's the Secretary, or, uh, uh, Senator Murkowski raised the concern about the, uh, those groups that had been excluded uh, from the original uh, Lulisit uh, group in May of 2008. Uh, when the Danes first raised the idea of going to Lulisit, uh, there was some concern inside the State Department that really this wasn't even necessary. Uh, that the uh, that the, uh, the Arctic was an area that was uh, already regulated; that we did not need to have uh, a uh, a new meeting. Uh, and there was, I think, a sense inside the State Department that we really didn't need to go uh, up to the Arctic uh, for this meeting. Uh, but uh, in pushing further, uh, there was an agreement that we would go. Uh, that we would participate. And I think that uh, both Denmark uh, and Norway, who had originally had uh, the idea of a, uh, of a Arctic meeting, uh, were, were really uh, prescient uh, in the idea that uh, we needed to get together uh, and to solve uh, the ideas of the Arctic. Uh, the, uh, uh, Senator Murkowski mentioned recently uh, that the Senator Clinton uh, in, uh, in the meeting in Quebec, uh, had criticized uh, Canada. And uh, some of you may have seen the article in the Washington Post at the time in March, uh, which said, uh, Clinton rebukes Canada uh, at the Arctic meeting. 
Uh, I think that was actually uh, probably an overstatement, uh, that that uh, was not her intent uh, in, the, uh, at, in the Quebec meeting, uh, was to uh, make a criticism uh, of the Canadians. Uh, I think that some of, the, some of my friends from the uh, State Department in the room would say that was not uh, Secretary Clinton's principal message, uh, to be critical of Canada for not inviting uh, the other uh, Arctic uh, Three, uh, that certainly this is an important uh, uh, point that we, there needs to not be a creation of uh, tension or friction between the uh, A5 coastal states uh, and the other members of the Arctic Council. Uh, but I, I do not think that was Secretary Clinton's principal message uh, in Quebec, uh, that, uh, that we are creating friction uh, between the A5 members uh, and the other members of the Arctic Council. I think that was probably uh, a message that she wanted to convey that we need to be careful uh, in having the important meetings of the coastal states, uh, but uh, not that there sh is not a special role uh, for uh, the Alulicet group. Uh, so I think maybe in that regard I would disagree with Senator Murkowski uh, that uh, uh, that that was, in fact, uh, intended to be a, a rebuke uh, of Canada. Uh, I think there is, in fact, an important role uh, for the coastal states. Uh, they are the ones who are most directly affected uh, in the Arctic uh, and uh, uh, do have special responsibilities. Now, let me say just a couple of things about uh, where we are on the Law of the Sea Treaty, what, it's, uh, what it leaves open and what it does not. As I mentioned, we tried very hard in the Bush administration uh, to push the treaty through the Senate. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it did get caught up in election year politics, uh, and ultimately uh, John McCain, who had been one of the, uh, the greatest supporters of the Law of the Sea Treaty as a Navy man, uh, ultimately uh, backed off his traditional support for the treaty, and I think other Republicans in the Senate felt they did not want to put him on the spot. Uh, by asking him to vote uh, on the treaty, and so we were ultimately unable to push it through in 2008. I think it's uh, uh, really disappointing uh, that the Obama administration did not act in 2009 uh, to push the treaty through at that point. It's, it's as Senator Murkowski said, it's going to be almost impossible uh, to do it this year. Uh, last year would have been the year to do it. Uh, uh, there now will be a narrow window uh, next year in 2011 uh, so that we don't get caught up again in 2012 election year politics. Uh, so the, uh, the message, I think, to the Obama administration, for all of us who support the Law of the Sea Treaty, is to spend this year getting uh, all of our ducks in a row so that uh, a, uh, a campaign in the Senate can begin in early 2011. The, a week of floor time, yes, it's a lot of time on the Senate floor, uh, but it can be done uh, if it is planned for. As everybody here knows, uh, every significant stakeholder in the United States, from the military to uh, shipping to fisheries to telecom to environmental groups, all support the law of the Sea Treaty. So it's a, just a matter of getting these groups together uh, to uh, push the administration and to push the Senate uh, to act in 2011. I do think it's disappointing 
that the Obama administration has not acted quickly, uh, but what they should now do is spend this year getting ready for next year. One significant problem, uh, as the person who was responsible for trying to get all treaties through the Senate, is that there are a lot of other significant treaties uh, that the Obama administration would like to push through, including uh, CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the uh, CTBT, the uh, Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, uh, the uh, START Treaty this year. So there's probably not enough bandwidth uh, on the Senate floor to uh, push through a number of controversial treaties all in one year. So that's going to be the big challenge is uh, the, the administration may have to pick only one treaty next year uh, and which treaty is that going to be. My hope is that it will be the Law of the Sea uh, Convention. Uh, let me just say a last couple of points on uh, where there are some gaps, perhaps, in the, uh, in the Law of the Sea Convention. This is where Scott and I agree. While there is, in fact, a comprehensive legal framework provided by the Law of the Sea Treaty, uh, there are certainly some sub-issues that are not specifically addressed, and those were touched on in the Alulicet Declaration, uh, and we have been working on them ever since. Uh, those are uh, more specifics on uh, oil and gas guidelines. The Arctic Council has now issued oil and gas uh, guidelines. Uh, a, a more uh, detailed uh, polar code with uh, more teeth in it, uh, and the United States has been strongly supporting uh, the International Maritime Organization's efforts to come up with a new polar code. Uh, more cooperation on search and rescue. This is something that the Russians have been pushing uh, very hard. Uh, and more uh, uh, comprehensive regional fisheries management. One of the things that I thought was most interesting about the uh, Quebec Declaration uh, uh, was that it went farther than the Alulicet Group in stating uh, U.S. government support uh, as part of the group uh, for uh, binding guidelines in some of these other areas. The United States has traditionally been s uh, somewhat skittish about agreeing to uh, binding uh, rules in uh, other areas, and at least in my own analysis of the uh, Quebec, uh, there was not actually a declaration but a chair's summary by Canada. You'll have a look and it says uh, that the parties, uh, the, the Arctic Five, uh, provide their uh, and give their support for a binding Arctic search and rescue instrument, a mandatory regime for shipping in polar waters. Uh, so this is really a step forward in terms of agreeing uh, to more binding law, uh, not treaties, but at least uh, uh, binding rules uh, in the Arctic uh, that, uh, that all of the parties would agree to. Uh, so overall, uh, we do have a comprehensive legal framework for the Arctic. The United States needs to become party to the Law of the Sea Convention. I hope that 2011 and early in 2011 is going to be the period that we do it. There are these uh, gaps that need to be filled uh, that it looks like the administration is working hard uh, on moving forward in terms of uh, uh, supporting more uh, binding law. Uh, and uh, I hope that, uh, in fact, uh, uh, we will move forward in the uh, Arctic Five grouping which I think does provide an important, uh, uh, important group uh, to, ish to uh, uh, address uh, some issues while uh, being sure to uh, reduce any tension between the Arctic Five uh, and the Arctic Council and other groups. Thanks.
Thank you very much. And Mary Beth, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, like Scott, I, I am very fortunate to get to do the Arctic Circuit as much as I can. It is very difficult to get uh, to get away from the Senate and our workload there, but I'm fortunate to get to work on this issue and very fortunate to have a boss, Senator Murkowski, who is, as she said, very passionate and very interested in this issue, and she probably does an Arctic speech once a month. And um, so I, I get to travel with her on this Arctic circuit um, as often as I can. Uh, as Mary Beth said, I have a, a bit of an unusual background. Um, uh, to, I, In fact, I, I remember I delivered a load of fish into Kodiak on a Monday, and I was sitting in a cubicle in the Hart Senate office building on a Wednesday, <laughs> and I was not in Kansas anymore, and I wasn't really sure what had happened. But... Um, <laughs> We, we end up working on issues uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I started in the Senate about four years ago. Uh, at the time, the Arctic issue was just one of the 12 different issues that I work on and was a fairly small piece of that portfolio. I would say now I spend an hour a day on it um, and, and weekends and as much time as it takes to read everything and try to keep up. Um, and it is an issue that I have come to... Uh, feel, again, very passionately about, very interested in. Obviously, Alaska has, uh, has a unique relationship being the, uh, the Arctic state. We are, you know, the United States is an Arctic nation because of Alaska. And you'd be surprised. I'm from the southern part of Alaska. It's, it's quite a large it, – it takes me about four hours to fly to the Arctic from where I am from in Alaska. So it's a big state, and a lot of Alaskans have never been to the Alaskan Arctic um, so we, we, we even have work to do in our own state. Um, the advantage of going last is I get to fill in a little bit, and, um, and, and most of you and, and certainly the panelists are probably uh, uh, far more expert, uh, certainly on Law of the Sea. Um, one advantage about coming into this issue fairly late is I don't have all the scars. I don't have all the baggage. I, have, I don't have the cynicism, and I don't have a lot of the... Um, maybe pessimism about working on this issue. There are many in this room who have been working on the issue for decades, and uh, I've been involved in fisheries for decades, and I know what it's like to, to work on something. But to work on something where you see no resolution, where you see a light at the end of the tunnel that just keeps on moving, I, I, I give you all the credit in the world if you're still working on this issue. Um, uh, just one little point about my background. Uh, we have a unique system of fisheries management in the United States. So I was a commercial fisherman, but I was also a fishery manager. Uh, I was on one of the regional fishery management councils. Alaska has its own. Alaska supplies 60% of the fish caught in the United States, about 4.5 to 5 billion pounds a year. And I was uh, able to participate in the management of all the federal fisheries off of Alaska. So. I had a unique perspective of actually being on the water fishing and then being part of a regulatory process that we worked within the EEZ. We had fishing agreements, straddling stock agreements with Rush on Pollock and the Donut Hole. And I was exposed to all of that from a fairly early point when I got involved in fish politics. And um, as I learned in Alaska, um, fisheries politics in Alaska is actually pretty good training for politics in D.C. because it is a... Is a <laughs> It, it, it is a very contentious issue. Um, I, I'm also very fortunate that Alaska is probably the only state um, where we have almost consensus support for the law of the sea. Now, we got that by working on it, um, 
you know, I want to talk a little bit about grassroots and constituencies a little bit when I get into kind of what we deal with in the Senate. But I will say that um, we worked very hard to bring this issue to the attention of Alaska and get support from our former governors. I remember having a conversation with former Governor Palin in 2007, asking her to write a letter, asking her to support it. Um, we had great support from her staff to do so. Uh, then she went out and got the Governor's Association to endorse ratification. I mean, these, were, these were the things we were doing at home to try to gather support. We have a resolution out of the Alaska legislature that passed both the Senate and the House overwhelmingly. I'm not sure if there's any other legisl state legislature in the United States that's come forward to support uh, the treaty. Um, of course, the delegation strongly supports it. Um, you know, it, it, it helps to have that kind of that interest and, and, and that support from our home state because that is really missing uh, on a national level. And as I, as I started working on Arctic issues and the senator was uh, very upfront about her support for ratification, uh, she was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2007. I got to staff her through the Law of the Sea hearings. We had two panels. Again, as John said, we really uh, were geared up thinking that we were going to be able to move the treaty and then we got, it got caught up in um, Republican primary politics. Again, we hoped maybe in the lame duck after the November election, and it just, there just wasn't time. There were too many other priorities that had got pushed to that time period. So I was also extremely disappointed because I think we had put together some pretty broad support. And I, and I will say, you know, I have a vote. Uh, you know, we, we go through it weekly, but we have the votes in the Senate to, to pass the treaty. It changes slightly, and, and I'll talk about the political situation a little bit in a minute, but we do have the votes. That's not the issue. That's not the problem. But, but jumping back to this grassroots idea, um, your, your average American, and we deal with this all the time, is, is just now, as the senator said, waking up to the idea that, uh, that the United States is an Arctic nation. Now, the law of the sea treaty doesn't just affect the Arctic. Um, it affects all, all the waters, and the extended continental shelf, um, extending the continental shelf doesn't just affect Alaska either. We have a continental shelf. We just happen to have two-thirds of the continental shelf of the United States in Alaska, so certainly we have the most interest in it from that standpoint. Um, but it, it is very hard to develop grassroots support for something that is um, very nuanced, very complicated, has... I would say a, a, a quite a bit of baggage attached with it. Um, you know, I have lists um, on, on Caitlin's website. There's a great list called Stakeho Stakeholder Endorsements of U.S. Accession to the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. And it, it's a who's who of industry and, and politics, right down from the Obama administration, Bush administration, secretaries of state, all branches of the military, right on to the oil and gas industry, the shipping industry. We've got the fishing industry on board. Um, I mean, all the NGOs are there. It's academia, scientific community. I mean, this should be enough to show the broad support that the treaty has in the United States. The problem is, is this doesn't translate into Senate offices very easily. This isn't, this, these are constituents, but they have to be constituents who, who weigh in, constituents who push this issue. Um, there is grassroots opposition. A Senate office I uh, was recently talking to said that just out of the blue sometime maybe earlier last year, they got 100 faxes 
at like 8 a.m. opposing law of the sea. It wasn't, there were no discussions about it. It wasn't at the Foreign Relations Committee. It wasn't stated to come to the floor or anything else. But they got 100 faxes to that office because someone wanted to show them they could send 100 faxes to that office opposing this. This was to, to a senator who does support it, a Republican senator. It is, uh, for us to genuine, genuine, generate uh, 100 faxes from Americans supporting ratification you know, I'm going to have to reach out to those industries. Um, right now, the NGO community, the environmental community, is really the bulk of our grassroots. They have, uh, I would say, jumped behind ratification. They have mobilized. They have resources available. They're going to be a key piece, but we have to have some kind of grassroots on the other side of this issue. Or when those 100 faxes come into that Senate office and there's nothing on the other side, um, it makes it difficult makes it difficult to go to the senator and say, well, everything we've heard on this is opposition, but you need to still get out front, speak in favor of it, and vote in favor of it. So th that's one of the pieces that I think we have a challenge with is, is how do we generate that grassroots support for it. Um, again, just to talk a little bit about the Senate and the calendar, we talked about the past a little bit. It is going to be very difficult to find the time, given Given the, given the priority issues that are before the Senate, given that it's an election year, um, I think that the START treaty being prioritized, I, I still believe that the uh, law of the sea treaty is, is in the top two. I think Secretary Clinton reiterated that. But um, START treaty is going gonna, is gonna to take some time and debate and a lot of hearings. And, that, and frankly, my, my thought on that is that's going to take us right through till probably January or February of 2011, I think it would be very difficult, and I'm very pessimistic that somehow while that is out there, we're going to move another treaty in. I just don't think that that's going to be possible. You know, that we get accused sometimes in the Senate of, um, you know, you can only focus on one thing. Well, we, we are working on a ton of things. I, you just go to my desk every day. You can, you can look at that. We jump from issue to issue. They're handling a lot of things, but when it gets to the Senate floor time or it gets to the committee time, they, ha they tend to be very focused on that one particular thing they're working on. And so f to get the law of the sea into that mix is going to be very, very challenging. The senator talked a little bit about this cycle we see ourselves in, and I think, I think most observers would, would agree that without the administration really pushing for floor time, um, they're not going to do it. They're not going to schedule it. The, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is not going to schedule hearings until they have floor time scheduled. And so they look and say, well, until we hear from the White House and it's a priori priority and leadership actually, the White House says to leadership, you need to schedule it and you need to do it, then they go to Foreign Relations Committee. We're going to have to have hearings. We have new members. It's going to have to be open, transparent, like the two we did in 2007. Uh, we'll have to go through that process again. But they're waiting for that signal from leadership and they're waiting on the White House. So. As John said and, and the other speakers have, um, have commented on, I will reiterate that, that it's really got to be a priority of this administration and this White House um, that this is the next treaty to go. And I agree that there's a narrow window in 2011. You know, the, the politics in November could be very interesting, and, and my vote count's going to, of course, go out the window because we're going to have quite a shakeup. We have a number of retirees, and when I look at senators who are supporting um, ratification, a number of them are leaving the Senate, 
We're going to have new Republican senators coming in. Not sure what their politics are or their view on the issue. Most senators, I will say, don't want to go on the record on this issue because they don't want to get 100 faxes um, for no reason in their mind. Now, that's not going to say they're not going to vote for it, but they're not going to come out front. When we have discussions staff to staff, senator to senator, many of them say, I'm supportive, but I, you're not going to hear me say a word about this treaty because they don't want to set themselves up. We don't have that grassroots that someone comes out in support of ratification and, and you know, there's this glowing uh, praise from, you know, the United States and constituents everywhere. And, you're not going to get that, but if you come out in favor of it, you can be guaranteed what you're going to get on the other side. You're going to get criticized. You're going to be, you're going to get blogged. You're going to be in op-eds, and so there's a reluctance to to come out front on this particular treaty. Um, November election is really key. We don't know what the makeup of the Senate's going to be. We're certainly seeing a move to the right to more conservative. That puts Republican senators in a bit of a tough spot. If you have a November election and you have a more conservative opponent and the conservatives are railing against the treaty, you're going to give them one more thing to rail against you when you're running in November? Probably not. So I think, um, I think it's you know maybe after August, but I think you're going to see very little movement between now and the primary, certainly. Um, and, that, and that could affect our, our, our votes for if, if we do get it to the Senate floor, what happens in November. If we, get, if we don't do anything in 2011 and we get to 12, and then not only are we in, a, in, a, in you know, some more Senate races, but we're in a tight presidential race potentially, we're going to get right back to where we were potentially in, in 2007 leading up to the eight election, and that is it becomes a national campaign issue. As soon as it becomes a national campaign issue potentially and a conservative issue, then, it, then all bets are off. So... Again, I, I'm, I'm echoing the senator. I'm trying to be pragmatic. You know, one, one thing I will say about my background that has been good to prepare me for this job is that, um, you know, driving a fishing boat around the Bering Sea into 30-foot waves and just getting beat for days was, was good training because there are times, as I've learned in the Senate, that you can have the best idea in the world and everybody supports it, and it'll never see the light of day, and it won't, you won't have any light at the end of the tunnel and you have such an uphill climb to try to advocate for that position. Um, you know, I came in without, not, without knowing much about the treaty, and maybe, like Scott, was a little bit skeptical. But I had to recreate the past. I had to go back to the very beginning and, and, do, and do a lot of homework and study and, and listen to a lot of people who were experts on it and meet with a lot of others. And I certainly understand um, some of the criticisms, although, unfortunately, and I have stacks of, you know, all the every position there is out there on the issue, um, too many of them are, are, are way in the past, and they're, and they're certainly not relevant today. But, but that's part of the debate on this is, uh, it is it is a very complicated issue. And to get that grassroots support for it um, is, is very difficult, I would say, with the American people. But um, I'm still optimistic. Um, you know, I'm willing to, uh, you know, crash into the waves for, for – for a while. I haven't been doing it for 30 years, so I've certainly got um, a lot more energy and time uh, to put into this issue. But uh, we need to do it. The Senate needs to do it. Uh, one of the questions I get asked all the time as I'm doing the Arctic Circuit meeting with, with a lot of the other um, Arctic nations is, we don't understand, you know, why won't the United States ratify? What is wrong with the Senate? And by the way, how come your process is so screwed up that one or two opposition 
can, can block this. We don't understand. And I said, well, democracy, it can be very messy and hard to understand, but it is what we have, and we have to work within that. Um, it, it isn't easy to explain why it hasn't moved um, from an intellectual standpoint, but it's not always an intellectual debate. It is an emotional debate at many times. It is a philosophical debate, and without being too critical of those who don't agree with me, it is oftentimes an uninformed debate. And so we, we have our challenges. I remain optimistic, but I think the realities are, if someone asked me what are the chances this year, I would say uh, very low, especially with start now, very low. Um, and in order to do anything in 2011, it's going to take um, a tremendous effort from, from all of us, uh, getting grassroots support where we can, um, getting, getting the White House to really step forward on this. I think that's our challenge. So thank you. Let's take uh, – uh, Heather says we have 15 minutes for uh, questions. So any questions from the audience? I think it would be helpful if you would uh, state your name and your affiliation. Yes. Oh, okay. Hi. My name is uh, Rob Hubert from University of Calgary up in Canada. Uh, my question is for the panel, but perhaps uh, – uh, for those from the State Department. We heard a lot about the governance issue, particularly the issue of the Arctic Five. Uh, one of the issues that countries such as Canada, Finland, uh, Norway have faced when has always come with the Arctic Council has been the difficulty it has to have the Americans engaged. Are we correct in watching what Hillary said recently up in, in, in Canada that in fact that this position is changing? And if so, does it mean then that for the Arctic Council there might be a possibility of reform? And I'm thinking specifically in terms of funding, uh, the, the infrastructure that it has, in other words, the bureaucracy that, uh, that the United States State Department has been so, uh, or I shouldn't say State Department, but the government has been so opposed. And even more importantly, given what the Senator said at the beginning, is there a possibility that the American footnote to the Arctic Council, that is that it will not deal with issues of security, is there a possibility that that can in fact be removed so that we can go ahead and address the issues that, uh, that were raised in the morning? Well, I guess I may be about the closest you come to a State Department official uh, <laughs> since I'm an ex-State Department official. Uh, and so I need to be very careful because I've been out for a year now. So this is – and it maybe Scott or others may have a sense. And I do see various State Department <laughs> officials in the room who may decide that they would like to pipe up. You know, my, my sense is that the – after the first Alulicet meeting, we did get beaten on a little bit by some of the indigenous and by the uh, non – uh, or by Sweden, Finland, and Iceland, who were concerned that we had created an exclusive group. The United States, at least, and I think the other countries, made very clear this was not an intent to exclude anybody. It was an intent to use the group of states that are most directly affected uh, to agree uh, on certain things and make that complementary to the Arctic Council. Uh, the United States, I think, continues to want to work through the Arctic Council. Uh, I think in the last year or so, we've become even more sensitive 
my sense was that Secretary Clinton's statement, which was never intended to become public and certainly not, as I said, the theme of the Council, that U.S. rebukes Canada, uh, was simply a little a footnote that, guys, we need to be careful to uh, unite and not divide. Uh, uh, and that perhaps either certain countries or indigenous groups or others fed to the press a suggestion uh, that this was really more than it really was. I don't know that we will see more ministerial meetings uh, in the near future of the, uh, of the Arctic Five because that work has essentially been done. But I would expect that the United States will continue to work through the Arctic Five while at the same time putting uh, even more emphasis uh, in the Arctic Council. But that's my perception as someone who's now one year removed. And there's Dave Bolton who can give you the real answer. David. Thanks very much. I would like to confirm what uh, John said. I'm Dave Bolton. I work at the Department of State. Uh, yes, yeah, Secretary Clinton mentioned essentially in passing that for the wide variety of Arctic issues, we should be inclusive bringing in not only the three other members of the Arctic Council to such meetings, but also the other stakeholders, and in particular the permanent participants, civil society. Uh, yes, at uh, State, and I would say we can speak as the government as a whole, we are open to thinking about the Arctic Council in somewhat new ways. Uh, and one new way is already underway. Uh, following the Aluvisat meeting, the Council agreed to do something it had never done before, and that is negotiate an international agreement on search and rescue. Those negotiations are underway. And yes, it looks like it will be a legally binding agreement. We already had two rounds of negotiations, one in the Department of State in December, one in Moscow in February. The next round will be in Oslo in June. I'm actually co-chairing those negotiations with a Russian counterpart. And we'll see how this goes. If this proves to be a successful exercise, and we have every reason to think it will, perhaps it could lead to other ways in which the Council can be looked at to take on some new issues. Security issues? Don't know. Don't know. That certainly was not the original intent, I think, of any of the eight Arctic Council members to put security issues in the Arctic Council. The focus has been on sustainable development, environmental protection, and that is still what the Council does best. But here we are dealing with at least a kind of security issue, search and rescue, Let's see how it goes. If I, I wanted to add one quick point on that. Um, I, I think um, in my conversation with the senator and what she said in her speech, she, what she focused on and what she put at the end of her speech about what Sen Secretary Clinton highlighted is something that she's aware of. And um, we had conversations post those two meetings with, uh, with whether it was other countries or ICC and others, um, was simply we need to think about who the stakeholders are we need to think about what their roles are going to be. Um, and that's, I agree with John, that's what I think Secretary Clinton was bringing up. We need to be careful. Uh, we need to put, give some thought to this collectively. Um, with all the interest not only from the non-Arctic states, but, um, I mean, the non-Arctic coastal states, but non-Arctic nations who are very interested in the Arctic, whether it's China and others and, and those seeking observer status, clearly, and, and whether it's the EU, um, clearly we need to have conversation and dialogue, um, I, I think, among a, a very broad, in a very broad context. And so I think that's really what, what the senator was saying. She was uh, agreeing with Secretary Clinton. The, the part about criticizing Canada, I, I agree. I, I think that that was overblown, and it was more of um, 
you know, there, there are other perspectives out there. Let's, let's bring them into the conversation in the right context. Rob, if I can just say quickly, Ambassador Bolton, who you just met, de deserves a huge amount of, of uh, <coughs> congratulation for the work that he did with the National Security Council to put together the document that President Bush signed on January 9th of last year. Uh, our commission had recommended this, and as we and the Coast Guard and the Interior Department and some folks at State had gone around the government to encourage this process to get started, our interest had been in raising the level of attention on Arctic issues, and I think we've sincerely accomplished that. Uh, the fact that you're seeing a Navy roadmap, the fact that you're seeing the Coast Guard moving into a place where there was once ice and now there is water uh, is, is very important. And whether or not we get to the Arctic ambassador, uh, there is an implementation group uh, in the White House right now working on implementing the U.S. policy. Uh, the search and rescue agreement, I believe, is only the first of several that will come along. We have to have an Arctic a access for science agreement of some kind. It's, it's going to be very important. Or we can't, do, we, we can't serve the world with the science that they need to deal with the climate issue, uh, for one. And then finally, on the security issue, uh, <clears throat> David's right in that the search and rescue is, in a way, a, a, a military cooperation agreement because they have the hardware. Uh, and, and so that is a, a first way to do it. But I would also say that the shipping, uh, the shipping discussion is very, very close to the security discussion. As I flew uh, over Diomede, which is one place where you can see Russia from your house, uh, <laughs> Last, last week with the Russian border guards, we were talking about how do we integrate traffic management in the Bering Sea and how do we, how do we get to, to have a good set of ground rules so that there aren't conflicts. Because the one thing that everyone should know about the Bering Strait is that in wartime, it's a Bering Gate. And the Arctic Ocean is, not, is today a shipping destination for goods in and out of the Arctic but uh, in, in the, uh, it is the pathway between the oceans, and with 60% of our submarines in the Pacific and the need to move them to the Atlantic in a certain case, or uh, uh, some sort of conflict in Asia where someone might want to prevent goods from coming by direct routes uh, to, to resupply, uh, it's a very important venue. And having very good, solid shipping regulations, being there with icebreakers, and having the capability to in, to, to essentially project uh, uh, enforcement of, of what the law of the sea gives us for guarantees for shipping, I believe is, believe is a very important security issue. And the Arctic Council has taken a very big step with this marine shipping assessment. Any other questions? Research Council, um, a question for Mr. Berliner. Uh, how important is really, a naive question, is really ratification? As long as the United States is respecting the agreement, been doing that for a long time, and you could go on doing this for decades. Is this, uh, is this the real option? I can give you 
half an answer to that because I think the other half comes not so much from me but from you and from others around the world. For the United States, uh, yes, from the time of Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan said, although we were concerned about the deep seabed mining parts of the convention, that he directed compliance with all the rest of the law of the sea treaty, and we've been doing it ever since. And I don't think anybody has really suggested that the United States has not been. So we simply apply it as customary international law and have not uh, deviated from it. Uh, at the same time, for us to – it is important for us to essentially take full advantage of the benefits of the treaty. Obviously, we can't stake a real treaty-based claim to our extended continental shelf unless we – uh, submit to the Continental Shelf Commission. You know, in people's sort of wildest dreams, they've have suggested, well, maybe we will just start drilling up in the Arctic on our extended continental shelf anyway, uh, and we will get Congress to uh, pass laws essentially stating it's ours. In, in theory, one could do that under U.S. law, uh, but it's not clear. One, that would not be consistent with the convention. And two, I'm not sure that any oil and gas companies would really want to enter into uh, a a situation where even if they had uh, a statute-based claim, it was not a treaty-based claim. Uh, so one, without actually becoming part of the convention, uh, we can't take advantage of our rights under the extended continental shelf. Uh, as we get more and more challenges around the world to our military activities as well, uh, while we fall back on asserting uh, freedom of navigation under the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, when we're not actually a party, it makes it harder for us to make those claims. Uh, so in general, we've gotten along reasonably well, uh, which, as Arnie would say, is one of the things that I get back from every senator that I ever raised with, well, what's the big deal? You know, what, we're doing just fine uh, under the law of the sea without actually becoming a party. Uh, but for us to really protect ourselves, to have a seat at the table, uh, to uh, participate in dispute me resolution mechanisms, it's important to become party. The, to go back to the first thing I said, I think really would be a question for others. I mean, I hear from grumblings, for example, from Russia of, well, how is it that we are party to the Law of the Sea Convention and are respecting our obligations, but the U.S. seems to get benefits but without uh, actually becoming party? So uh, I would ask to other countries, how much is it, uh, is it really uh, hurting the United States as well? And I think that's an important question. Scott wants to follow up and then go on. As the author of a recent report called The National Interest in the Law of the Sea, I would offer that you divide sort of the answer to that into two areas, which John touched on. The first is a real moral imperative. It, the United States is at its best when it's an architect of international order, I think. And the Law of the Sea Convention, which we fundamentally shaped and then was subsequently changed to address our concerns, that it is difficult to lead international climate negotiations uh, or any really uh, have authority and moral imperative when the U.S. refuses or parliamentary procedure is, is – stuck, but from the rest of the world's perspective, it might as well be the same, to join the convention that provides a legal framework for nearly three-quarters of the Earth's surface. So on the first hand, there's sort of the moral argument. On the second part, which we've all touched on today, and this is where my report ended up, that if you're a foreign policy hawk or a realist, that it actually undermines tangible, specific U.S. national security interests by remaining a non-party. 
whether it be not fully participating in the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf in our Article 76, not being able to impose Article 234 in the Arctic, not having our seat International Seabed Authority, uh, putting our Navy at risk when it's exercising freedom of navigation operations in the Taiwan Straits or the Straits of Hormuz, not getting Asian partners to help us in nonproliferation efforts uh, for weapons of mass destruction. It's a long list, and you'll hear the CNO and the commandants of the Coast Guard say, start with those arguments of why, uh, for tangible reasons, not moral, sort of that stuff's nice and we all feel good as internationalists sort of reasons, but in that as it fundamentally undermines hardcore strategic U.S. interests by remaining outside the convention. So fundamentally, for those reasons, that's the argument I begin with, uh, with some friends on the right who are suspect uh, immediately of sort of just the idea of, of the United Nations and international conventions and the whole thing, is that at the end, this actually undermines hardcore U.S. interests. And that fundamentally, for me, is the reason why we should join. Well, I want to thank the panel for a great discussion and the audience for, for good questions. Thank you very much.
Ladies and gentlemen, we'll begin panel two, if you'll kindly take your seats. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please take your seats? Thank you very, very much. We're delighted to uh, uh, build on the enthusiasm and the great expertise of Panel 1 and Senator Murkowski, and now moving uh, to Panel 2. I realized as I uh, began my opening remarks this morning, and I was a little focused on Senator Murkowski's arrival, that I failed to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Heather Conley. I'm a director uh, and senior fellow here at CSIS of the Europe program. So I'm going to start from the very beginning again. Good morning and welcome. Um, and the distinguished gentleman that introduced Senator Murkowski is my boss, president and CEO of CSIS, Dr. John Hamry, who needs no introduction in this town because he's known by so many, but uh, uh, I, I, we failed to uh, mention uh, and, and appropriately introduce him. So uh, thank you so much for that. And with that, Caitlin and panelists, welcome, and we look forward to your comments. Oh, there it is. Hi, my name is Caitlin Antrim. And today is a chance to prove that I am not a single-issue law of the sea person. Um, after reading all the newspaper stories in, 1997, or in 2007, after the Russian flag was